Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And there's a live debate at the moment about the role of the public service in providing expert advice to the government of the day. In the Westminster system of government, we have, um, do ministers need to act on the advice they receive or can they take the advice of the public service and act contrary to it? I think we know the answer to that, actually. Um, Ken Smith is Dean CEO of the Australian and New Zealand School of Government and has a long and diverse career as a public servant in the Queensland government and held senior public policy roles at the state and federal level. He's got an essay in the latest Griffith Review called Remembering Who You Report To. And uh, welcome to Triple Arts. Great to have you here, Ken. Thank you. And it's come at a very useful time, this essay. I know it's um, kind of written before recent scandals, but I think I suppose you can um, say it highlights the tension that's been there for some time about the role of public service expertise. Maybe kind of tell us how you see it, the role of the public service. a a lot of the public service um, don't uh, work directly to ministers. Most of the public service um, work in hospitals, in uh, our public schooling system, uh, in uh, our emergency services system, uh, in environment and land use and a range of other areas. And for a lot of those people, um, they do uh, report to the public. They work in the public interest on a regular basis and uh, they don't necessarily get involved in the sort of uh, uh, conflicts uh, that that sometimes uh, appear where people are giving advice from their professional background uh, to uh, the the minister or the government of the of the day and so I wanted to reflect on that and uh, um, reflect on the issue of the decline in trust which we know has occurred but look more specifically at where that decline is and a lot of it really does relate to decline in trust uh, within the political system rather than the judicial system or the public service system um, or um, other parts that make up our democracy. And uh, I think um, it it, uh, requires us to think um, deeply about the role of the public service as part of a foundation of um, our democracy. And that that lack of trust, it's quite incredible, the figure you quote in your piece in Griffith Review, that um, uh, trust in the federal government in particular has fallen from 82% to 49% from the decade uh, 2008 to 2017. That's a really dramatic fall. But do you see that as as being explicitly about the the federal government as kind of elected officials? Yeah, there, there continue to be issues at state and the local level. But the interesting um, issues that come through those figures is the closer the democracy is to um, uh, where people are and and the lives they experience, the greater the degree of trust. And so um, my conclusion is maybe it's time to have a rethink about representative democracy. That is, um, you know, a democracy where we elect uh, people for either three or, or four-year terms or around that that period. But many people are really interested in being involved and uh, the forms of deliberative democracy, of ways of engaging and involving um, the citizens is really important and that will improve trust. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you don't go into it in the essay, but we have seen sort of rise of citizen juries or or the like where, you know, particularly uh, local government has mm. used that kind of model in Melbourne and Sydney and other places where they've kind of had a representative sample of people to have input into a budget even and the like. But I, I wonder with regards to that, kind of advice and and the advice coming from the public service because we are seeing seeing and you write this that governments and ministers take advice from a whole range of different places mm. and has that been historically the the case um, going back it hasn't been as diverse uh, the the forms of advice that um, that ministers and governments receive um, but now it is contestable and it should be contestable I mean I'm not um, suggesting that public servants just simply have the answer. They have a role in ensuring that uh, a range of interests are analysed uh, and, in, and in advising government uh, of those, uh, those interests. I think what is important, though, is that we expect government to actually operate in the public interest rather than in... Um, from a point of view of sectional interest. And in fact, there's a strong basis uh, within our system that um, governments and ministers um, have uh, an overall duty. The highest duty is to operate in the public interest rather than in their uh, uh, narrower sectional interests in terms of who might have supported them to be elected in the first place or who continue to support them at that time. And so have you seen a shift in the nature of the relationship between the public service? If we think about government departments and heads of de- departments and that kind of thing, um, relationships between them and the government of the day? And, and if so, what is the nature of that change and how has it impacted on, on our democracy? Um, both positively and negatively. I think the, the issues that um, you raised about um, having a variety of sources of advice is a, is a positive thing. What we've got to make sure is that um, advice is evidence-based, um, not just someone feels that, uh, that, that something is important. But because when you look at issues of trust, um, for example, um, the uh, health professions and uh, scientists are actually um, trusted uh, much, at much higher rates uh, than uh, 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 actually senior civil servants, the mandarins, uh, which are, uh, are not trusted as much as those involved in direct service delivery and direct contact with people. So I think w- where you've had those changes is where people have directly confronted um, evidence. And it's not really uh, an issue of left or right, as we can see at the moment in terms of climate change. Um, Having spent six years of my life in London, um, and uh, uh, obviously you would have uh, seen Boris Johnson's announcement um, with respect to climate change and uh, um, with respect to banning um, vehicles, uh, uh, both uh, diesel and and, uh, petrol vehicles. And um, hybrid vehicles as well. That's right, and mm. and and completely introducing, you know, an, an electric um, fleet. And so, uh, I don't think it's necessarily uh, a left-right issue. It's an issue of um, of uh, if you like the, the the differences that people try and exploit politically. Mm. Um, I think some of that trust um, uh, erodes where people do see direct evidence that um, uh, that that you know 
certain um, things should should occur. I think the other the other real change, and it's going to be interesting as the community expect to be involved more and more in key decision making. Um, we saw obviously um, uh, the year before last uh, the uh, marriage equality debate where the community were involved in decision making. If that had been left to representative uh, our representative democracy, it, there may have been uh, and continued to be a stalemate. But in that case, the community spoke very strongly for marriage equality, for the um, the issues that, that they saw as important as, as a majority within the community and, and, in fact, gave a very clear message uh, to people who themselves may have had, had very different views as, um, as uh, elected officials. That's a really mm. interesting perspective on that because, I mean, can you see, and I know other countries have it, plebiscite-type surveys... Um, non-binding in that instance, um, have a greater role in our democracy. I mean, one, it's expensive to do, but on the other hand, uh, it's, do you see that as being kind of more representative than, say, just voting for an elected official? Uh, I think you can engage people in a range of ways. I mean, plebiscites are one uh, solution, and um, uh, I'm not, I know, you know, the pain uh, within the community of, of going through the the uh, the marriage equality survey by ABS. Um, it was hard for people, and people felt that much of you know the uh, the debate um, was not necessarily fair or reasonable. But what it did show was the very high degree of um, of support and understanding and uh, uh, and engagement you know with the with the issue i think there are other ways of doing it you mentioned local government um, often getting together um, with the the community um, discussing things in detail um, deliberative democracy isn't just a yes no vote it's understanding what the issues are understanding the evidence and then having faith that uh, that people uh, can be very reasonable um, when uh, when asked to to be involved. So it's not. I don't think it's necessarily you know a plebiscite on on everything because people need to be informed, need to know what the issues are. And yeah, it takes, um, make it, takes make investment an informed decision. and resources, yeah. 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 I'm speaking with Ken Smith, who's currently the Dean and CEO of the Australia and New Zealand School of Government, and speaking all about his piece in the brand new Griffith Review, Matters of Trust. The piece is entitled Remembering Who You Report To. And on that issue of, of I guess, transparency and making informed decisions, part of that is um, freedom of information, of course, which you talk a little bit about in this piece. It's been well documented documented that um, for some years now the um, availability of, of those uh, information coming out of the public service and freedom of information requests haven't always been um, to the, the standard uh, often required or desired of journalists. Is that a really significant issue and, and, and where has that kind of issue arisen, I suppose? Um, why has that come about? Um, look, I, I think it's come, come about because of confusion of accountability in some cases in the public service. There's a great debate in the public service about whether freedom of information itself has uh, constrained uh, advice and people are giving more verbal advice rather than than written advice. Um, I think the alternative view is that unless something 
really does need to be kept secret, a security issue or a, uh, a uh, uh, an issue uh, related to uh, investment or um, an economic issue that 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 would be of concern. The the it's better to actually make information available, and people can then make informed choices. And so, a lot of the 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 uh, the view in public administration is that by making things transparent by ensuring that people can access that material, that the, the media, etc., that you actually get better decisions rather than worse decisions because the um, uh, advice can be provided. Um, uh, in the intro to this session, you mentioned, yes, um, public servants provide advice. They, uh, the elected uh, uh, officials, a minister can accept or reject that advice. I would argue that if you have transparency of the advice and transparency of the decision. Um, it's not an issue so much about not taking the advice. It's an issue of giving the rationale as to why that advice wasn't taken and yeah. why you made a, a, a different a decision. Different decision. Mm. And I think that, I mean, it, you know, we have seen that come forth in recent with, you know, the spending on sports facilities and the like that we saw, you know, the advice was given. We saw what advice was given. We saw what the result was. And and I think also we've seen, you know, retired fire chiefs provide, you know, in, in their case, unasked for advice, but advice nevertheless to government, which also wasn't, didn't appear to be taken. And I think there is a, a you know, really live public debate saying, well, why aren't you acting on the expert advice, whether it's from your, your own public service or from outside bodies? And I think um, that said, you know, politicians are elected to make decisions as well on behalf of their community. So it isn't a sort of a, a black and white issue, is it? No, it's, no, it's, it, it, it has to be nuanced. But if you believe that um, fundamentally... Uh, people have a right to know that um, that fundamentally you, people are paying for government, you know, through through their taxes. That th- these are taxpayer funds. That the public have a right to know one what the advice is, and secondly, what the decision is and what the rationale behind that decision was. The problem with attempting to make those issues secret is that you're not shining a light on the issues and that if you do that across a range of areas that um, isn't important, you move away from what has been important with freedom of information and that is that you push information out rather than pull it out um, of of uh, of government that if you believe that you know government is and should be accountable to the people and public interest, then you should have um, that exposure. I think the problem as well in the environment that we operate in, it's harder and harder to keep that material secret. So if it is um, leaked or it, it it does become available, it then becomes a bigger issue um, than if it was dealt with up front. And, and if people were really honest saying, this is the advice we got, but we made this decision for these reasons, there, there could be um, great validity in why alternative decisions are made because of other information that is available to people. I think um, this issue about the public interest is really important. And in the recent sort of bushfire season compared to um, Black Saturday, Ash Wednesday, where a process was that... Um, advice was provided by the Bureau of Met, by the 
the, um, uh, the country fire brigade by emergency services to ministers and then throughout the day they then fronted uh, the media and provided advice to people through the media. The development, for example, of real-time apps uh, no doubt save lives. So people can be trusted with information that was once only available... Well, that's a good example. ...to a, a selected yeah. few. Mm. So if people know exactly what the, the bushfire warnings are, they can go to an app whether that relates to flooding or cyclones or other activity, people will make really um, very good decisions, but they've got to have the tools available to them to enable them to make So we're not being secretive about that information, like the governments aren't, but, I mean, I've... You know, many people in recent years have said Australia has one of the most secretive democracies on, on the planet, and so it's interesting how those things can go hand... Yeah, and it's really interesting if you look at some of the issues around trust and and accountability and near neighbours, New Zealand, and uh, we have responsibility across the ditch, the Australian New Zealand School of Government, but um, under both sides of uh, politics in New Zealand, there is a far greater um, acceptance of of information being available to people. Um, That leads to greater trust and uh, greater um, uh, view that there's less corruption, that there there is greater integrity in politics. And New, New Zealand, where you see countries that maintain much more open regimes um, to engage their citizens, there's a far greater degree of trust. So it's not, you know, there are worldwide trends, but some of those trends in um, Westminster-style systems that we've inherited have have actually been very much based on an old conflict model and uh, um, almost uh, uh, trying to define issues that divide us rather than, in fact, issues that unite us. Mm, interesting. And, and last year there were some concerns about the um, implications of the reforms to government departments. Um, the PM announced that four would be abolished um, and five secretaries were sacked in that process. I know um, in particular some were concerned about the role of the arts in, in, in um, the new kind of department it would be housed within. Do you have any concerns around that sort of new makeup, or is it sort of largely an administrative thing that doesn't really have too many real-world implications? Um, look, the machine we call it um, in in the public service machinery of government. Um, the, those changes, you know, are um, open to a government, but they can be very expensive uh, to implement, and they they can actually. Um, lead to loss of knowledge of, of corporate history. And so a lot of the research in terms of um, machinery of government suggests that these need to be managed very carefully. There needs to be a strong rationale. And um, the worst thing is if, if it's just done for political purposes, then usually it doesn't work as effectively. Mm. Um, I think issues like um, the... Uh, reference to the arts are important. Um, but they begin symbolically, but it's important um, to engage with various sections of, of the of the community. Um, and you know, we've talked, uh, you know, at the edges of of, uh, of sport. Um, there's no doubt that art and culture engages many many 
Australians and they're very uh, they find that engagement very precious um, whether it's their major you know artistic institutions or um, you know throughout the the um, the areas of the visual and performing arts uh, are you know vitally important uh, for the for the community Ken in closing uh, I mean you were part of the the crew of people rebuilding the kind of public service after the Fitzgerald inquiry in Queensland uh, how optimistic are you that that we can start to build trust up again particularly you know you you point out that we've lost so much trust particularly in federal government in the past 12 years can it be built up again look at yeah it, it can be it requires um, uh, particular leadership and um, it it also requires uh, uh, the the uh, uh, a sense of the importance of trust, and I think the um, the addition really points to the fact that trust is the sort of glue that that holds our social institutions together, and that um, without it, and and with greater degree of untrustworthy behaviour. Um, then we do get really these uh, 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 really um, huge uh, chasm chasms that that appear between people, and you know the 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 view, for example, during the U.S. State of Union address when uh, Trump refused to shake Pelosi's hand, and then at the end of that speech, he ripped up the State of the Union address is a demonstrate, demonstration of um, huge rifts that are occurring and those rifts actually only um, uh, really uh, create more problems for, for a society and bringing people together uh, than solving the sort of issues that we need to. Often um, where leadership does that, and we've seen that in Australia um, in the past uh, in areas like uh, the response to HIV AIDS and, and brave policies, courageous policies back in the 80s to introduce needle exchange to lower the transmission you know, of, the, of the virus. And then in the Howard administration, the institution of gun controls in response to Port Arthur were really brave measures that operated in the public interest rather than in narrow sectional interests of the few people that wanted to hold arsenals of guns versus the great majority of people who wanted a safe and secure community. Well, bringing up the US um, example shows us that we might not yet be at the bottom of the barrel, but <laughs> let's hope we are. Thank you so much, um, Ken Smith. Uh, you can read his latest uh, essay uh, called Remembering Who You Report to, Pathways to Good Policy Outcomes in the latest Griffith Review. And uh, Ken is uh, over at the Australian and New Zealand School of Government, among other roles, and thanks for coming into Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We like to 
focus in on stories that tell us a little bit about ourselves and also about the changes we're seeing all around us. And shorebirds or waders are some of those most at risk from climate change and also industrialization. Many of them are migratory birds that live on mudflats that inter- that sort of interface between the sea and the land. And author and journalist Andrew Darby has been following the plight of a couple of grey plovers as they travel from southern Australia to breeding grounds in this sort of Arctic region via the Yellow Sea around China and their story raises all sorts of issues that need attention especially if we're going to protect biodiversity as the planet warms and it's really good to have you Andrew and congratulations on the book. Thank you kindly Kalia it's great to be I'm glad to be with you. And I suppose um, tell us why you wanted to focus in on the story of the the grey plover. Well look um, I just as by way of illustration um, last Saturday I was out at uh, Robins Island in the far northwest of Tasmania, which is pretty wild country, and I was looking out to sea and seeing strings of uh, probably redneck stint and other migratory shorebirds, Arctic birds, little pieces of Arctic silver stretched across the horizon. They're really quite elate, elating birds, really quite magical birds. The notion that these little creatures should make their way down from the Arctic tundra to far southern Australia to breed and then go back again in an annual cycle is pretty extraordinary and that's what caught my attention. And so tell us about the grey plover. For those who might not kind of um, immediately be able to bring them to mind, what do they look like and, and roughly how big are they? Okay, so our gateway bird to the grey plover is the masked lapwing. That's known as the plover generally around Australia, but it's just a gateway bird to some to another, which is really quite uh, different. The grey plover is um, a globally, um, not abundant, but globally pre- present species. Uh, you'll find it um, out on tidal flats, uh, usually with mixed flocks of, flocks of other birds like godwits and red knot. Uh, and it is... Um, uh, really an extraordinary migrant. The first flight that it took um, from uh, the two birds that I followed took from a Gulf St. Vincent, South Australia, was for a distance of 7,000 kilometres. So that was a flight across Australia, across Indonesia, across the Philippines to Taiwan and China, southern China, which is where these two birds landed. And so we're talking about a non-stop flight there, a non-stop flapping flight, really quite an astonishing feat. And how did you choose the sort of individual birds that you wanted to track? And I suppose, you know, tell us where they took you. Yeah, sure. So uh, really these birds chose themselves because they were fitted with satellite trackers. Uh, and they, uh, the group that fitted them, the Victorian Waiter Studies Group and um, a South Australian group called Friends of Shorebird Southeast, they followed these birds' satellite tracks um, all the way to the Arctic uh, and on the journey back again. Uh, so you were able to, I was able to see, um, not, not in real time, but follow up, uh, with the aid of things like um, Earth Wind Map and uh, Google Earth and so on, I was able to follow the journey that they actually took day by day in some cases and see where they where they struck trouble, uh, where they were able to um, 
get a clear path to the Arctic and where they finally landed and what they did on the breeding grounds. Really quite extraordinary information uh, that was achieved as a result of these of this work by these citizen scientists. Yeah, and, and I want to talk a bit about those citizen scientists and, and people who have, I guess, come before you to try to understand these birds a little bit better because often they're not necessarily specialists. They're enthusiasts who have just, you know, found these creatures fascinating and, and sought to, to learn as much as they can from their migratory patterns. What do we actually know, um, you know, I guess in the, in the present day about how these migratory shorebirds actually navigate and, and kind of chart their path, um, you know, right across to the other side and, and the top of the earth? Well, you're right, Dylan. The, um, the, this information has been slowly gathered over time. Um, and, but we have learned, gone from a position where we knew practically nothing um, to now in one human lifetime where we have really detailed knowledge of these birds and what they do. Um, their abilities are really quite extraordinary and they use things like the Earth's magnetic field lines to navigate. Um, magnetic fields lines are obviously present, you know, a compass points north, but we, we as humans probably have no ability to see them, whereas these birds do. Uh, and the Wilchkos, a German couple who have done most work on magnetic field lines in birds, have repeated the results in species after species. And they've found that what these birds have is, in effect, they have what a fighter pilot would call a head-up display. They, the birds likely see, through, the, through, their, through their eyes, they see um, the intensity of the field line either rising or dropping away and they're able to use that as a tool to navigate the earth. They also use the, the stars at night. They probably don't use the moon but they obviously have some recognition when they get down lower of the um, actual geographical features of the earth that fit as waypoints on their journey and as places where they will stop. And it seems to me that, um, you know, having all of this knowledge, collating this knowledge and bringing it together with, with science and data, that ability can't come soon enough because their patterns are now sort of having to change, aren't they? Like a lot of the places where they, you know, what they call staging grounds where they'll kind of land and try and feed on their way between Australia and, and Siberia and the Arctic and back again are being affected by by changes coastal coastal changes maybe talk about some of the stuff that that we're learning about the the, the changing mud flats and the availability of those areas yeah sure so over time um uh, you know over decades and um, many decades um, these birds have been pinched uh, between the land and the coast often by what people do often by uh, the claiming of uh, tidal flats to create more land um, but also by hunting um, for food um, and uh, pollution, those sorts of issues have, have, have dogged these birds. But what's happened particularly in the past couple of decades is that there is a pinch point for these birds in the Yellow Sea. Um, you can imagine the birds sort of spreading out along the flyway, the southern flyway across Australia and across towards Asia, and then they funnel up through the Yellow Sea because it's incredibly rich. It's incredibly rich in food for them. The mud from the Yellow, from the Yellow River and the Yangtze River flows out into the Yellow Sea 
which um, is which curves around to the Korean Peninsula, where there are where there are more tidal flats, and this has been um, incredibly important for these birds to feed on. But land claim in the Tello Yellow Sea, building further out into the sea, building seawalls, has meant that much of their their feeding grounds has disappeared, uh, and we have, uh, um, as a result. Um, four birds that are listed now as critically endangered in Australia. They're, they're, um, these migratory shorebirds join, join a very short list, uh, and they are, uh, they're obviously in trouble because of, particularly because of the loss of those feeding grounds. Um, as far as uh, climate change goes in the Arctic, this is an unfolding story. Um, climate change obviously means sea level rise, but you know, plovers are an extraordinarily persistent bird. The earliest known um, bird that has descendants is likely to have looked like a plover, and that's 130 million years old, fossils of it discovered in China. So, you know, it's incredibly persistent through geological time. But um, with climate change, with rapid climate change, Perhaps it might be okay, but other shorebirds which are more specialised uh, are likely to find themselves in trouble as, as they lose more of their uh, breeding grounds to both sea level rise and also the melting of the permafrost that would bring, um, uh, that, that is coming with, with uh, climate change in the Arctic. To me, what, it, what this shows is the connections between um, a place as, as remote as Australia and the Arctic. We are one world. We are one globe, one Earth. Uh, and these birds are a, a dynamic evidence of that link. We're speaking with Andrew Darby all about his book Flight Lines, a um, kind of a story of him following a couple of uh, grey plovers um, all across the earth on their huge migratory journey. And, and are we witnessing um, any kind of adaptation happening, um, given that these, you know, the staging grounds on um, around the Yellow Sea kind of area, those mud flats are experiencing sort of rapid industrialisation and so on? Um, adaptation by the birds, mm. you mean? Yeah, look, um, there is uh, little evidence of that. Some uh, The birds tend to uh, adapt to the extent that they get um, pushed into smaller areas, uh, but in smaller areas there's less food. Uh, and so the, really the question is whether they will be able to survive that. I've been to the Yellow Sea, and so you will see things like there's a lot of um, aquaculture ponds behind and salt ponds behind the seawalls now. Uh, and so you will see things like the birds will go and roost on those and occasionally will be feeding in them if, they happen, if there happens to be a good hatch of brine shrimp or something like that. Um, so there's, they, they, they persist in that sort of sense. But when you get specialist feeders like the um, Far Eastern Curlew, which is at that, uh, the biggest migratory shorebird, that one with the really long curved beak, Bill, rather, with the really long curved bill, when you see that, um, it needs sort of to be able to work its way down into the mud to be able to feed. Uh, and it's a long-legged creature um, and it's in trouble now um, as, as are several other species. 
Well, this is a really fascinating book, Andrew, and I think you tell the story really well as well. I mean, what's next for you? Like, you've been looking at environmental issues for a long time as a journalist and author. I mean, what what are your plans? Are you you got some more birds lined up to follow, or what, what, what well, comes next? Well, to be honest with you, I um, have um, been focusing very much on getting this book done. I haven't really thought a great deal about it, about what's next, except that last year, I live in Tasmania, and last year uh, we had um, really serious wildfires in the Tasmanian wilderness, and it sort of that really made me sit up and notice. But of course, uh, subsequent to that, the terrible wildfires that have that there have been in Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, um, this this summer have sort of uh, um, taken my breath away from that sort of thing. But I'm still thinking about that. What and something that might be relevant to the Tasmanian wilderness, which is really a, a, a Gondwanan treasure out there. Yeah, for those of us that have seen it, it's a very it's a great privilege to visit those parts of Tasmania. Thank you so much for joining us today, and all the book um, best with the book. Thank you kindly. Okay. Thanks. Um, Andrew Darby, um, Flight Lines is the book. It's out through Ellen and Unwen. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And as one of the first items of business on the parliamentary calendar, the PM uh, delivers the annual Close the Gap Address and tables a report. That, of course, is the initiative designed to reduce the disadvantage experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across a range of indicators. The speech and accompanying report has become a regular fixture on the parliamentary calendar since the Close the Gap framework was developed under the leadership of Kevin Rudd back in 2008. And some have expressed frustration with the initiative's lack of success but there's hopes that things might be shifting following a substantial refresh and a more active involvement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations and representatives. To talk about this, we're joined by Rachel Hocking. She's a journalist with SBS, co-host of The Point on NITV, and of course you would have heard her um, broadcasting here on Triple R on the likes of The Mission and Still Here. How are you going, Rach? How are you going, Dylan? Great. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Great to have you on the show. And so we have heard that there's a substantial kind of refresh of the Close the Gap initiative that's been happening over the past year and a bit. What's your understanding of this new approach and I guess how it changes from what's come in the past? Uh, there's been talk. I mean, we know that Close the Gap has been a phrase that's been used for our community, to our community, maybe sometimes with our community for the past uh, 10 or so years since 2008. And basically what we're expecting to see this year is what community have been calling for a long, long time, and that's more involvement in the process and uh, more involvement with communities in the process. So what we're going to see is hopefully this uh, refresh which looks at the targets. We know that there have been different targets. Uh, there have been the same targets every single year and uh, different ways of achieving them. So looking at, um, I suppose, sub-targets, how we get to how we get to uh, equality, equity by involving community every single step of the way. That's kind of a, a really broad overview of what this refresh is looking at. And and so, what has the the sort of different approach? What has the consultation look like? And so, we have a group who are sort of represent broadly the uh, interests of Indigenous people across the country 
we call them the Coalition of Peaks. Uh, they are basically a group of you know, Aboriginal people who represent the organisations which uh, represent Aboriginal people's interests across a range of fields, so, you know, our legal interests, our health interests, and uh, a group of people have been championing the interests of Aboriginal people um, as Aboriginal people in our communities for a very, very long time. And they are people who have been meeting with Ken Wyatt, with the Prime Minister over the past year, uh, to develop these ways of achieving the targets in the Close the Gap strategy, which involve community directly. And so what we're hoping to see is that not just after the Prime Minister's announcement this week is uh, going to be more of a, an update on where we're at. That's what we're used to getting on February 13, or what we call Sorry Day. Uh, we will be getting um, an update on, on where these targets are sitting at um, how far they've progressed. We know that last year I think it was only three out of the seven were on track. Um, coming up in March will be the COAG meeting and that is where we hope to see a sort of sign-off on what this refresh is. So we only have a little bit of information. We've been kind of drip-fed things at every single meeting of the Coalition of Peaks, this group of Aboriginal people, and the uh, representatives from government, so uh, Minister for Indigenous Australia, Ken Wyatt and the Prime Minister himself. And you mentioned Ken Wyatt there, who yeah, is the Indigenous Affairs Minister. He Has his involvement changed this process or was this on the cards already, Rachel? Uh, I, I don't know to what extent his involvement has changed the process except that being an Aboriginal man um, and being the former Minister for Indigenous Health, um, he's had a lot of uh, involvement in this area anyway. He also had a very uh, long career working in Indigenous Health before he entered government. So his, his expertise, I suppose, um, in a lot of those areas would have, um, you know, helped his uh, conversations. He also had relationships with a lot of these people who were in the Coalition of Peaks with great back before he was in government. So that, I'm sure, would have helped, but this refresh has been talked about for a while. It's been pushed for for a very long time and I would say it's the work of the people in the Coalition of Peaks as well as community people who you won't hear the names this week the people who work for the Aboriginal Community Health Services on the ground they have been pushing for this for a long long time and this is largely their their hard work paying off. Yeah, for those who perhaps kind of haven't followed the Close the Gap um, initiative and framework closely, it might come as some surprise that there hasn't been this, um, you know, type of concerted engagement with Aboriginal peaked pool across Australia from the outset. But of course, there's a long track record of a lack of engagement, um, you know, going back for, for many, many years. Um, Pat Turner, who's the lead convener of the Coalition of the Peaks, um, has written of kind of her frustration at being ignored my governments for years and, and then a breakthrough kind of came in 2018 after she and others wrote to the PM expressing their frustration at not really being consulted in this initial um, idea of, of refreshing the Close the Gap initiative. Why the change? I mean, it, it seems that this kind of came um, after a, a long period of frustration, but now it seems there is a more, um, at least genuinely from, from what you can um, tell from hearing from people like Pat Turner, a more consultative process underway. That's a really good question, Dylan. I guess what's changed is... Um, it- it, whether or not there has been, um, you know, genuine change on the side of the government, that's uh, anybody's call, but at least it's being perceived that way. So there have been um, quite a few meetings over the past year where they've convened 
as many of the in peak, uh, the Indigenous peaks as they could. Uh, there was a meeting just in January, at the very end of January. So for this announcement to come, you know, soon after another meeting, I think that's um, a, a really good thing that there's been engagement all along the way. Um, it looks like there might be a willingness to talk about the things which have historically stopped, you know, long-term change in this area, and that's, you know, commitment to long-term funding, uh, putting power back into the hands of community-controlled organisations rather than organisations that operate from cities that are operated by non-Indigenous folk. So there's going to be... It, I think there are still going to be some frustrations ex, um, expressed from some people around the country about uh, the process that's always the way these things go because not all Indigenous people are on the same page. But what I'm hearing, and, and I guess what you're hearing as well, is that for the most part this is the most hope we've heard in terms of what the Close the Gap strategy might actually deliver. If it's meant to wrap up at the, the biggest, um, I suppose, target on that list being the life expectancy clause, which sits at around eight years for both, you know, the gap being eight years between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people dying, then, uh, and that is meant to be met by 2031, which is not a long way away, 11 years away, then we have to pick up the work a lot quicker than what's been happening because 11 years is not a long enough time, I would say, to um, to close a life expectancy gap of that large. But if you are going to even attempt it, you're going to have to start listening to Indigenous people. Rachel Hawkins, an NITV journalist and co-host of The Point. And, and Rachel, I mean, we've heard on this station um, people like Muriel Bamplett talking about uh, shifting of decision-making to Aboriginal-controlled organisations happening in Victoria. Uh, is, is some of that filtering to the federal level what's happening at at the state level is that also part of what's happening even around things like treaty and the like yeah so uh it has to happen at a state level as well which is why we are waiting for this coag meeting in march to sort of sign off on how this refresh is going to look exactly and how it's going to be implemented uh but yeah in in victoria i was based in victoria for the past couple of years and we did see control back in the hands of the traditional owner organisations, which are run by blackfellas. And that is, uh, I suppose, something we hadn't seen really before in such a large process with such a large amount of money going towards something which is directly impacting Indigenous peoples. So hopefully that sort of model is going to be something that's going to be replicated across the country. Um, there are already examples of it happening elsewhere. There are other treaty negotiations kicking off around the country which would be looking to similar ideas. But the thing is, is traditional owner groups and um, Indigenous people look different all across this country, so it can't be a one-size-fits-all. That's the main message that comes out. We are, we are not a homogenous group of people. We have too many diverse interests and needs for a one-size-fits-all close-the-gap package to go across this entire nation. And you've all be, also been uh, recently reporting on, um, I guess, kind of new ideas that um, could exist alongside some of the Close the Gap um, initiatives and um, and uh, uh, targets and, and that kind of thing, one of which um, is the idea of lowering the retirement age 
for Indigenous people, I guess, um, you know, keeping in mind the significant life expectancy gap that exists, is there hope that through this more consultative process, some of those ideas might gain a little bit of traction to, uh, I guess, assist people um, in the here and now who might not be able to experience the same benefits such as, you know, accessing your superannuation of a certain age if the life expectancy gap um, is still um, so distinctly um, apparent? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it. I can hear the calls and and why they are wanted so badly. Because the truth is, changing uh, the the um, life expectancy for our people, changing many of the targets, um, many of the outcomes for our people is going to take a really, really long time. So we have to have, look at long term change. We have to look at uh, long term funding. Uh, have a long term vision, but we need short-term vision as well. We need to have short-term strategies. And that is why people are calling for immediate things like lowering the retirement age, so the the age at which you would access your pension and um, also potentially your super. So there's so much so much um, we could talk to you about, Rachel, but when, I mean... Perhaps we can we can speak to you again after we've seen the Prime Minister's address. When are we able to see that? You said on the 13th of February. Yes, that will be on the 13th this Thursday. And um, NITV will be keeping uh, a pretty big coverage of that across the day. So uh, if you want to keep on our website for any updates, also we have our nightly bulletin, which will be live from Canberra. All the best. Thanks for um, beaming back into Triple R. Cheers. Thanks. Nice talking to you. Likewise, uh, Rachel Hocking, uh, you would have heard her hosting various programs on Triple R and uh, NITV journalist and co-host of The Point. She's up with SBS in Sydney. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.